Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Hamilton's Board of Education says it will adopt all 12 recommendations from an independent review that was prompted by allegations of racism from a former student trustee. Don Danko, the chair of the board, is going to join us to talk about that. A GTA doctor was terminated for what seems to be a disagreement with the Ontario government's policy about COVID. Are physicians being muted because of the medical advice? And Canada could get more than 1 million additional doses of COVID-19 vaccine by the end of March, but the government is getting backlash about where that's coming from. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We do want to talk about what's going to be happening with schools, but we also want to touch on a very troubling report that was also issued yesterday, and that, of course, is the the probe into the accusations of racism and oppression. Uh, you may remember a few months ago now, I guess, uh, we had uh, a student, Ahuna uh, Mehdi, on the program. She's the one who put those comments and those accusations forward, and to their credit, the board reacted and said, we're going to investigate these, and there was an independent inquiry that looked into all this. 67-page report was released yesterday. They found that uh, that Medi faced censorship and was subjected to efforts to silence her voice when she tried to speak up on issues related to race. There's a lot more in here, too, uh, to unpack. But uh, we wanted to get uh, some reaction from Don Danko, who is the current chair of the Hamilton Board of Education. And uh, we'll get into uh, some of the other issues, but let's address this first. First of all, Don, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us uh, back on the program. Thank you for having me today, Bill. A lot of questions, a lot of concerns, and I've, I've watched some of the comments on social media about this and a lot of people that have emailed me over the last little while since uh, uh, this made news yesterday. I guess one of the first questions we need to ask here is, uh, why aren't we naming names in this report? They talk about trustee four, trustee one, making comments like this. Uh, these are people that work for us. Uh, they, you know, We, the citizens, elected them. We pay their salaries. Don't we have a right to know who these people are? Thank you, Bill. I, I just want to start by acknowledging that... Uh, we are committed to having an environment that's built on respect, transparency, accountability, and every student, including our student trustees, have a right to feel safe and welcome in our schools. And we failed to do that for our former student trustee, Hona Medi, and I sincerely apologize for her negative experience that she has outlined and, and brought forward to us. I, I just want to start with that. Um, in terms of why names aren't in the report, uh, we are committed to transparency. We've released the full report with names uh, adjusted so that where there is an allegation that was unsubstantiated, we are preserving um, privacy rights of individuals. Having said that, you'll note that a number of the things in the report happened in public session, um, so are publicly available. I, I, we're not hiding anything. Um, certainly, I, I believe in a lot of cases, it's easy to determine who would be in the report. Well, yes and no. Uh, there are some instances like this, uh, I, th- and I know what you're referring to here. One of the uh, quotations here, uh, it says that Trustee One, who is referred to as the board chair in the report, so we can draw our own conclusions about who that individual might be, uh, was asked to submit, and uh, one of, that was one of the concerns, of course, that, uh, that Ms. Meddy had, that she was asked to submit her questions for review and revision. Uh, and, wondering just whether you know why was she being singled out of this nature this because this is this is some pretty damning information here uh it is the finding of the investigator the trustees one trustee one's conduct regarding the complainant specifically her efforts to censor the complainant both in terms of her commitments to the keyboard meetings and preventing the complainant's amendment and subsequent motion from being heard is consistent with past conduct relayed to the investigator by several witnesses uh so this is not a one-off incident don i mean this is the thing i find most troubling about this uh the, the independent board here seems to indicate that there was a pattern here that was developing um, Bill, when we, when we look at the report and the findings, we were 
We're absolutely concerned. I think one of the key things that we're focusing on is that the investigator provided us with clear recommendations for what we need to do to make changes in our board. And one of those recommendations really talks about the fact that we need to identify and remove systemic barriers and discriminatory biases and practices. And I think that is really critical to look at because a lot of the practices that may be talked about in the report in, in that respect in, in terms of what you're referring to um, often are related to what's always been done. And it's certainly related to a system that has been built. Uh, this is an old system of, gov of governance, of education. And when you look at how the system is built, we need to recognize that actually systemic racism is real in our in our. Uh, older institutions and many organizations, including the HWDSB, have to tackle that head on. So to make systemic changes is going to be one of the critical pieces that trustees need to do to move forward. But here lies the problem, and, and this is something that, that I'm, I'm really trying to wrestle with here because I'm trying to understand just where the responsibility lies here. Uh, other allegations were specific to a trustee referred to as Trustee 4, who was said to have frequently made anti-Muslim remarks and made comments about there being, quote, too much black leadership at the board. How can you set policy and how can you set a standard and how can you set an example when people like that with that attitude are on your board? That's a, a great question, Bill. I think one of the key things that we've discovered through this report is that when something happens that is not acceptable in terms of conduct, we need better ways for those things to come forward. We need better processes to address any behavior that's concerning. Um, we need documentation. There's, there's a number of gaps in our processes that have led to uh, the point that we're at today. So I, I appreciate you, you raising that concern. Um, the board has decided to adopt all of the recommendations provided by the independent investigator who does have expertise in anti-racism, anti-oppression. They've done some really critical work for other boards as well. Um, and we have decided not to proceed with other individual sanctions at this time. Notwithstanding the fact that there's an awful lot of people that are going to be concerned about the attitude of some of the people on the board here and uh, the, the indication that there were some other comments made about uh, uh, about uh, people of color in, in a board in a situation like this. Uh, and, and I guess there's a, there's a I, I don't know that this is going to go away anytime soon. I mean, I, I saw your letter, and, and I understand where you're coming from on this. Uh, one passage from it, I think it's particularly difficult knowing that someone that was at our table, that was part of our team, didn't feel safe, did not feel included, did not feel valued. Uh, there's an old saying, Don, and you and I have had this discussion about you know some of the work that you're doing at the board right now to do with anti-bullying and things of this nature. And with the mantra that, that I'm hoping people agree to is, if, if you see something, say something. This happened right in front of that board. I, I don't see anything in this report that suggested that anybody was chastised, anybody was told to knock it off, anybody was told that these were inappropriate remarks. Uh, if you're saying nothing, <laughs> silence is compliance. I mean, th th there's a, 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 a growing concern here, not just the comments that were made, but the fact that, that you know this, this person who was actually being targeted was the one that brought this forward. Nobody on the board did. I think that's one of the, the, the key points, again, that we're looking at from the 
the perspective of the investigator and what they brought to us as recommendations, noting that the investigator did have the ability to recommend individual sanctions, but they focused on what we as a board need to do. And and some of those sanctions or, or, or recommendations are really important for us as a board, including governance training. And I think one of the challenges that we see is when something happens in a meeting, do people know how to raise a concern? Um, when something is a concerning behavior, do people understand the processes that, that we have in place so that we can address it? And then we've got the the other issue of, you know, if things happen privately, is there follow-up? Is there, again, documentation? We would expect that if something has happened that um, does not align with our code of conduct, that does not align with our expectations for ourselves and for the rest of our system and our students, that we would take progressive steps to address that. And in, in a lot of cases, that is confidential. And so there, there isn't uh, transparency in reporting. And so there, there needs to be some absolutely some changes to the way we do things as a board. And that means that we need to have some external viewpoints on our processes, our policies. Um, our, we need to have more training and it needs to be ongoing. It's not enough to have training once. And those are all things that uh, the independent investigator also shared with us that, as their recommendations. Dodd, do you agree with the idea that I share, and I think a lot of other people share, that if you're an elected representative, you should be held to a higher standard? That is something that I think uh, is absolutely fair and, and is important, that we, we are held to a higher standard. Um, I know that as an elected representative, I expect a lower level of, of privacy rights. <clears throat> Pardon me. But I also know that when I make a statement, um, that is going out to the public and the public can judge me on that. And we, we do know that ultimately our, our elected officials are also accountable, accountable to the electorate. Uh, they are accountable to their constituents. Um, but we also have a, a duty as public officials to take a leadership role to make sure that we are modeling the behavior we want to see in our communities. Um, so I, I recognize that we have work to do and that there are some issues that are highlighted in this report that cannot happen again and we need to make sure that we are prepared to take very strong action if there's any any hint that anything like this might continue to happen your point's well taken i understand where you're coming from here that uh, you know the comments are there and and it's up to us and as members of the public to make our own decisions about that uh but it's very difficult to do that when there's no attribution to the comments uh, i don't know who who four is i don't i got a pretty good idea who trustee one is because they referred to as the chair but trustee four i don't know and there's some pretty pretty frightening information here about comments and decisions and attitudes about that as well and you know the people that are supposed to be making that decision about whether that individual is worthy of sitting at that board uh are gonna have a difficult time to do it if they're not quite sure who it is but you've made your point and i think i've made mine on that so uh we'll leave it up to our listeners uh to make their own decisions about that too and i'm sure there'll be some discussion between some of the trustees and uh their constituents in the days ahead uh let's very quickly turn the page though uh, and, and talk a little bit about what's going to be happening you anticipated when you talked to us earlier this week uh that mr litchie was probably going to say yeah we're going back to business as of monday are you ready as a board to to welcome everybody back in and are you confident that you're opening those doors to a safe environment for the teachers the custodial staff and certainly for the students that's a great question, Bill. Uh, we are ready to, to open our doors on Monday. Our staff have been working behind the scenes doing a lot of important work uh, moving up the timelines because we were preparing for uh, somewhere around February 10th, 11th. I, I want to acknowledge that I appreciate that 
at a minimum, the government signaled that we were going to have clear dates yesterday. Um, that was a better announcement uh, process than we've seen in the past. I know that um, many people are still feeling that there's not a lot of time to be prepared to uh, make arrangements whether you're a family and you need to get your child to and from school. Um, you know, there are legitimate concerns. Well, we're still in a stay-at-home order, so I need to work from home, but but children and, and educators and staff are going to be in schools. Um, I, we, we have everything in place. We are working on communications, which is a critical piece in getting messaging out to staff today and families again tomorrow. We needed to get transportation in place for Monday. So certainly there's a lot of work that's been happening. We, we are ready, um, and I appreciate that some families and staff are really excited to get back in schools and others are feeling a, a little um, concerned about, well, is this safe given we've, we've been at home isolating for the last month? I'm glad you brought transportation up because that's one of the things I'd written down here because uh, they haven't been at work for a while. <laughs> and and there's always some concerns about inconsistency with transportation, who might be available, who might not be. Are you concerned that there could be problems Monday morning? At this point, we've been assured that we can provide full service as we had been in December. I know we, we had a number of delays and um, actual cancellations in the fall, but we had gotten to a point where we weren't canceling any routes. Um, so we are expecting them to be able to provide full service starting on Monday. And uh, all, it's all hands on deck, obviously. The teachers, and we're going to hear from a couple of the union representatives and just a little bit later on in the program about this. Uh, but Mr. Lecce uh, also talked yesterday about uh, extra money uh, that had been allocated. And I just wanted to get some clarity, since you're the one that sees the books as the chair of the board. Is there extra money, or is he just talking about money that was already allocated last year? Uh, we're working through that. Uh, there are a number of announcements. A lot of this is the second half of the federal funding that was provided through the, the Ministry of um, Education in Ontario and, and two other provinces, of course, um, to help support education through COVID. So we have had some announcements in terms of there will be funding for ventilation systems. We've done a lot of that that work actually we did that back in the in the fall um, and did inspections and improved our ventilation systems where it was needed we've added HEPA filters so there's the ability to purchase additional air purifiers but um, we currently have them in place wherever they're needed there's uh, additional money for supplies or um, for COVID related supplies so of course we have an ongoing need for supplies and and that funding is welcome I believe that's new funding just to support the ongoing purchase of supplies there's money for technology. We've already invested in a significant amount of technology to support our students while they're learning from home. Um, so I, I'm not sure exactly how that, if that's new money or where that would be appropriate to spend in our school, but we, we certainly do have areas where uh, we would welcome new funding. Well, we'll uh, try to get some answers from the minister when he joins us in about 45 minutes time. Uh, Don, thank you. Busy day for you. I really do appreciate you taking the time for us today. Thank you, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Don Danko, the chair of the board for the Hamilton Board of Education. A lot of ground to cover with what's going on. And uh, if you've got some concerns and some questions uh, along the lines that I was just asking Don Danko about, about the report, talk to your trustee and get some answers. These are the people that we elect to represent us, and these are the people that are supposed to be making policy on some very controversial issues. I mean, the board themselves, of course, are trying to deal with anti-bullying aspects and trying to set a policy, and I, with hope, trying to set an example but there's at least a couple of members on the board that are identified in this report right now that I don't have any confidence in being able to set any kind of policy because you are judged by your actions and by your words. Anyway, we'll see if we can get some more details about that at a future date. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
there's a number of different side stories that are going on to do with the pandemic and the way the government is handling it or mishandling it, as some people might be suggesting. And one of those, of course, is what's happening in the healthcare field. And uh, there are critics, as you might expect, uh, of the way that the Ford government has handled this uh, vis-a-vis long-term care. And you've heard a number of those people come on the program uh, over the last number of months and talk about the pros and cons of government policy. Uh, one of the people that has uh, spoken out about the way the government has handled this is uh, Dr. Brooke Fallis. Uh, Dr. Fallis uh, had an administrative position uh, in a Toronto hospital group uh, that's called the Osler Health System. You've heard uh, other doctors from that group that have been on the program in the past as well. But in recent weeks, Dr. Fallis has been sounding the alarm about the province not doing enough to control the arrival of the COVID-19 variants. Well, uh, recently... Uh, he was let go from his position as the GTA's hospital interim medical director of critical care. And some are suggesting that there could well be a connection between the fact that he was criticizing the government and now he's been told he's not going to get that position and he's been asked to vacate it. Matthew Bingley's been looking into this from Global News. Here's his report. Vaccination is not the answer to the current hospital problem. That's Dr. Brooks Fallis speaking to Global News just two weeks ago. The then interim medical director of critical care for a hospital network dealing with one of Canada's hardest hit regions was no stranger to speaking out about government policy. The government came out and said we've, uh, we're providing funding for another 10,000 ICU beds. We would be able to staff zero of those beds so it wouldn't really help us. In recent weeks, Dr. Fallis was repeatedly sounding the alarm the province wasn't doing enough to control the arrival of COVID-19 variants. On Wednesday, Fallis revealed a previously approved contract extension was suddenly reversed at William Osler Health System, a decision he says he was told by his employers was a direct response of political pressure over his critiques of the government and concerns its funding would be cut. A statement from Osler denied his account, saying, At no time has the provincial government given any direction or advice relating to HR matters at Osler. Any suggestion otherwise is absolutely false. Matthew Bingley, Global News. So do you take them at their word? I mean, where do you draw the line here? You've got a, a medical expert who's suggesting that what the government's doing is just not sufficient and, and ringing the alarm bell. And all of a sudden, he's uh, he's booted out of his position. There's a matter of ethics here, but there's also a matter of, of crossing the line. Uh, I'm going to bring Dr. Ann Collins into the conversation. Dr. Collins, of course, is the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Uh, Dr. Collins, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, we Please tell me we're not at the stage right now where politicians are, are going to be directing how not only what you're allowed to say as, as a, a practicing professional and, and an expert in this field, uh, but you've got to couch out a government policy. We're not there yet, I hope, or are we? Well, what concerns uh, the CMA is that we're seeing um, a bit of a worrisome trend here uh, in which the voice of physicians and healthcare experts seems to be being muted or censored. And what we have seen um, since the beginning of the pandemic um, are, is the harassment of physicians on social media platforms. And uh, most recently, chief medical officers of health, uh, both in Saskatchewan and the Northwest Territories, have uh, been intimidated and in one case have received threats. That's very concerning to us um, in terms of the effect it not only has on those physicians and their families, but on the provision of good uh, advice for policymaking. Well, and, and therein lies the problem. And I know that some of the experts we've had on, including yourself, by the way, uh, over the last number of months, uh, and, and uh, you, 
our, our listeners, of course, have seen their faces an awful lot of the time, and uh, epidemiologists and people in other fields of expertise, uh, and they've all told me, almost to a person, that you, you know they get their they get they get whacked on social media. People that are the non-believers, the anti-vaxxers, the this is all a hoax sort of thing, uh, and and you're the ones who are trying to actually in, inform us and, and tell us exactly what's going on, uh, and you're the ones that are being vilified for it. Absolutely, in many cases. Um... And, and I think it's important to realize that um, that could have uh, a far-reaching effect. Um, those in our profession who are in the arena of giving advice uh, based on science and evidence to policymakers need to feel um, secure. They all recognize that there is some risk uh, from Dr. Tam right on down to uh, local provincial uh, local and provincial medical officers of health um, that uh, you will be um, the target of, of public uh, dismay at times. But that being said, that should not be uh, to the degree that it that an individual feels threatened or um, not safe. Well, and we saw that, sadly, on the other side of the border. I mean, uh, obviously, I think we're all aware who D- Dr. Anthony Fauci is. He was the one that was trying to inform a, a nation and probably inform the world, I guess, from his position. Uh, and basically, quite contrary to the government policy that was that was rolling out on a daily basis, he had, they, he had to hire security people, uh, I mean, to go to and from his place of work. I mean, th- th- it's not supposed to be this way. No, and I think what's most impressive there is the change that we have seen in Dr. Fauci um, in recent weeks. He is uh, clearly a different man. He's able to speak freely. He's, uh, there is much more transparency around messaging. Uh, we've all witnessed that. And so that, uh, again, speaks to the, the need to allow and to support those individuals um, to, so that they can feel the same way that he's feeling or he appears to be feeling at this point in time, that there's, there's no fear of, of reprisal um, at any level. Yeah, he's a, he's a he's emancipated, which is wonderful to see. But we're, and we're we're getting the unfiltered truth, which is great. But here's the concern, and I I read the the press release that you issued here, and I think it's 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 bang on. Uh, as physicians, we have a duty to provide the best possible care for the patients, and have a responsibility to provide relevant evidence-based information to decision makers and to the public. And I'm glad you added that last phrase in there, and to the public. Uh, and I'll go into the government situation. I'm not going to try to pull you into the political weeds here, but, uh, you know, this is a pandemic. This is a, a public health problem. It's not a political problem. There are political ramifications to it. But I, as a citizen who wants to know what's going on and wants to know what the best track forward is, I'd like to hear from the people that are experts in this field. And I, we didn't elect any of them. The, the people like yourself and, and others that, that have spoken of Dr. Tam, of course, you mentioned on the national level. And, and I, I, I'd like to think that, that your opinions and, and that you're, the information that you're disseminating to these elected officials uh, is, is, first of all, being listened to, and, and second of all, is going to be an influence on how they develop policy. And I'm not sure that that's happening as much as we'd like it to. Well, it's clear that, you know, we are bound by our code of ethics, and, um, and yes, it, it, to, to provide 
the best possible care to our patients. And we very often think of that as just being on the in the office face-to-face. But we have a greater societal role here as well, um, both in our communities, uh, in our provinces, and nationally, uh, to provide care. Um, and, and care can be in the, um, in, the, in the presence or in the way of uh, science, uh, evidence, and, and so when that is done, yes, it is hoped that um, policy and decision makers take that into full account. And moreover, when people wish to uh, express their dismay about that in a public uh, forum like protest, that that be done in those public spaces. Well, there has, but, but what we're seeing, and this is clearly a result of the pandemic, and, and it, it, it's doctors that are forming advocacy groups right now. And I, I, I think it's tragic that we are at that point right now. You know, we talked with some representatives from, I know you're familiar with the group called Doctors for Justice and Long-Term Care. Uh, some folks that have been working diligently for a long, long time now to try to exact some changes, necessary changes in the system. That was long before the pandemic. And they're frustrated. And I, and I know many doctors uh, that we've talked to over the last year now that we've been dealing with this are frustrated by governments. I, well, I don't know what the government's doing behind closed doors and, and you know i don't know that they're getting the best possible medical advice i don't know that they're listening to it that's one of the things i think a lot of people are concerned about at this stage well clearly one of our messages consistently since the beginning of the pandemic has been for the need for clear and transparent information and certainly we are calling for that now as well around uh, the vaccine rollout and all the issues that surround that um, you're right. Canadians look to physicians, they look to their family physician in the office, and they look beyond that as a trusted source of information. And, and so that's, and that's what we want to do. Our end game always is for the best care for our patients. And so uh, we call upon governments to be transparent um, in, in their messaging and uh, their policy decision-making uh, with, with uh, people living in Canada. Yeah, and I understand that, you know, there's a reality here that we have to do with because of the political influences and things that are going on, and there's, there's always going to be a filter there. But some of the decisions, for instance, that have happened in Ontario recently, and I know this is going on because I've talked with colleagues in Alberta and other provinces uh, that, uh, that have the same concerns about how those governments are working, is we're all being told, doctor, that, we, that our elected officials, premiers, others, are listening to medical experts to try to get the best possible information and develop policy. I, I'd like to know who those people are. I, I'd, I'd like to know what their advice is, uh, you know, when it comes to school closings, when it comes to, you know, lockdowns, when it comes to this. You know, if there's a panel of ten doctors there and nine of them say don't do it and one does and they decide to follow the one that does, I, I think we got a right to know that. I mean, because, you know, is this a consensus or is this just simply, well, I'm going to go ahead and do this anyway. We don't know what goes on in those meetings behind closed doors. All we see is that elected leader at the podium there saying this is the way it's going to be. Again, it speaks to the need for transparency so that Canadians have confidence in, in, our, in the plan, whatever the plan is to get us through and out of this pandemic. 
Well, exactly, and that's where the expertise is. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd listen to Dr. Tam. I'd listen to the epidemiologists that we have on, uh, the infectious disease specialists, the ones that are, are, are working on, on pandemics and, and vaccinations, and there are some wonderful people that have great expertise and, and a lot of experience in this sort of thing. Uh, personal preference, I guess, on my part, Doctor, I'd rather see them at the podium every day instead of elected officials because you're filtering it through the elected official. And, and I, I don't know that we're getting the best possible advice. And when I see how other jurisdictions in, in other parts of the world have handled this, and by the numbers, they seem to be doing a better job than we are, I got to wonder, you know, where's where's that advice coming from? And, and is it being listened to by the elected officials? And more importantly, to, to go back to the point that we talked about to start off the conversation here, uh, in, with Dr. Fallis and others, uh, are they feeling pressure? Are people in your field feeling pressure right now to, to bend to the political will and simply keep their mouths shut? I mean, which, as you saw and we all saw, uh, a number of very prominent doctors, uh, you know, down in the United States had to do that, standing up there with Donald Trump every day. Uh, Dr. Redfield and, and, and Burks and others like this. And you could tell that they figured this is, this is crazy. But, you know, they figured, well, he's the boss. I, I don't want to be in that position. I want the doctors in your field and every other field to, to feel freely that they can speak out. Well, I, we've, we have heard anecdotally that some uh, physicians are beginning to uh, question or change perhaps the way they interact um, publicly. And so I think you're speaking to, and that speaks to, the ongoing need to, to create a safe environment where our scientists, our experts are able to to speak um, to speak to the best of their ability to offer the best advice to uh, to their their patients and to policymakers. As you hear from your membership, are they concerned that that that's not happening to the degree it is? It should be. Uh, as I said, we've uh, we've heard uh, anecdotally from some members that they are beginning to change maybe the way that they think about interacting with the media um, and and how they speak publicly. And we don't want to see that happen. And moreover, we don't want um, experts, scientists, epidemiologists to begin uh, thinking twice about their role. It is critical uh, that their expertise be involved in this pandemic. That's what we, we all have to focus on that and what's best for Canadians and getting us through and out of this uh, pandemic. Well, and we have to be realistic about this too, Doctor, as, as, as I'm sure you know from your experience in the field. Uh, we don't all have to be on the same sheet, song sheet here. I mean, there, there, within the, uh, that expertise, there could be some differences of opinion. We understand that totally. But that discussion or debate, if it, if it goes to that level, should be transparent so that we can understand and make our own decisions about what, what the information that we hear. Uh, we're not getting that right now because I'm, th I'm getting the feeling that some doctors uh, that want to speak out are a little hesitant to do it. And again, uh, transparency is the key word here. Tr support and transparency and looking for the best uh, possible evidence and epidemiology to provide it to help us in this uh, fight against COVID-19. Well, especially because, as uh, we're starting to hear now, given some of the other statistics, I mean, we're not anywhere near the end of this battle. I mean, there are variations on this virus right now. We're not sure the impact that's going to have. We're not sure how uh, effic efficacious the, the vaccines are going to be with these variations. Uh, we got a long way to go, so, I mean, we, we really need to get, to get our act together. I guess it's never too late to do the right thing. But uh, I'd like to see the politicians take a back seat and let the experts who know what they're talking about uh, start to, to develop and, and, and to 
form some of this policy. Uh, I think a lot of people would feel a lot better off because we've seen that happen in other areas, and it's worked. Well, absolutely. We need to, we need collaboration. It's it's a you know we go back to harken back to the term that we used in the very beginning. We are all in this together, and we are. And so we do need our. Uh, and this virus is not a political virus. It's not partisan. It crosses all lines, at all levels of government. And so we need all of those players, um, uh, policymakers, scientists. Um, physicians, all healthcare workers, uh, we need to to be a team as we confront and continue to confront this virus and its variants. Well, absolutely. And and I know we began the discussion uh, in a roundabout way talking about Dr. Fallis and uh, uh, what happened with him with his appointment, which that was taken away from him. Uh, and I'm not going to sit here and advocate. I think people can make up their own minds about that. I'm just hoping, doctor, that what happened there is not a symptom of, of a bigger problem. Um, well, as as do we all, but um, again, uh, let's remember that we've got uh, multiple healthcare workers working tirelessly. Chief medical officers of health have been, you know, 18-hour days, many days for a year. These individuals need to be feeling safe and supported so that we can get uh, their best work, their best advice um, into the hands and minds of policy and decision makers. Well, absolutely. Actually, a little bit later on in the show today, we're actually going to talk about the impact this is having on frontline workers, including nurses and certainly doctors as well. And uh, that's something that should never be lost on us. Uh, as always, Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Pleasure having you back on the program today. Thanks very much for having me. You take care. You too. Dr. Ann Collins, the president of the Canadian Medical Association. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about uh, vaccines and vaccine distribution. It's been a, a issue that's turning into a contentious issue. We always have to remind ourselves, I guess, now that we're actually uh, in pretty good shape here because nobody thought there was even going to be a vaccine for another year, two years, and now here we are talking and, and sometimes arguing about distribution. And we've told you many times what the experts are saying, that if we really truly want to control and, and eradicate this virus, uh, that there's got to be worldwide distribution. Uh, including third world countries, including countries who maybe can't afford to buy the vaccine, but they still have to have inoculations or we're all going to be in trouble as we were this time. But is that going to happen because there have been shortages and now we're debating and arguing and they're withholding this and this country wants more and uh, I, I don't want to get to the point where we're going to be hoarding, but I mean, you know, are we losing focus on exactly how this is supposed to roll out for the common good? Uh, some arguing that's exactly the way that we're going. So uh, there's a bunch of acronyms I want to talk about here, including what they call the uh, the TRIP waiver, uh, which is the Agreement on Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights, which would include vaccines. Uh, and are we adhering to that? And is that the best policy? I want to bring Dr. Jason Nickerson into the uh, discussion. Uh, Dr. Nickerson is a Humanitarian Affairs Advisor for Doctors Without Borders. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us again. Yeah, thanks very much for having me back. We've talked so many times about this in the past, about how we have to look at this in a wider perspective, in a global perspective. Are we losing our focus now because of, of this desire to, to roll up our sleeves and get this thing done, thinking this is, is going to solve everybody's problem? Well, look, the reality is like Canada and a number of other high-income countries um, are, are vaccinating their high-risk population. So mm-hmm. I'm talking about frontline healthcare workers, people in long-term care, uh, you know, the, the populations that we've been talking about for the last several months here in Canada who are the at the front of the line to receive vaccines uh, and and entirely appropriately I would say uh, you know these are, are high risk and, and vulnerable populations 
um, that are being identified as as the people that we should be vaccinating first here uh, for a variety of reasons. But the the reality is that those same high risk people uh, in low and middle income countries um, do not have access to the vaccine uh, today. So in in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, uh, there there are zero people who have uh, been vaccinated uh, against COVID-19 with any of the vaccines that um, are are becoming available and, and coming online in Canada and, and elsewhere. Um, and that's having, quite frankly, devastating consequences. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've been seeing the, the true effects of a second wave of COVID in places like Malawi, Mozambique, Eswatini. Um, and, and we're seeing health systems that are, are simply unable to cope um, healthcare workers who are having to turn patients away uh, because there are no beds, there's no oxygen that's available to meet the demand. Um, and these are places where, as I say, vaccines are, are, are nowhere to be found for vulnerable people, for high-risk uh, healthcare workers, um, and even a small amount of, of vaccine doses to vaccinate frontline healthcare workers could really have a, a, a significant impact in the trajectory of this, this pandemic. So the short answer to your question is that today, no, the vaccine rollout is, is not equitable. It's, it's inequitable. Um, as we're talking about vaccinating high-risk and vulnerable people in Canada, uh, those same populations in, in many parts of the world uh, are, are not being vaccinated today. And for those of who may have missed our previous conversations and, and are thinking, well, what? so what? Something in Mozambique, how does that impact me? Uh, when we've seen pandemics in the past and how they, they have been decimating to certain countries like this, we thought, well, that's never going to happen here. It happened here. I mean, we had that very same thing yep. that you were talking about, some hospitals where they were turning people away. They were triaging uh, people that were in IC units and saying, okay, don't worry about that one because they're not going to make it. Uh, it, it we, we got to the, the precipice of that, and, and these people are living it on a daily basis now. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, we can't lose, lose sight of the fact that this is a global pandemic. Um, you know, a year ago, we were talking about uh, cases of, of viral pneumonia um, in, in one part of China. And today we're in, in the midst of a, a, a global pandemic that's affected uh, everyone on, on the planet in, in different ways. So, you know, viruses know no borders. They, they spread, they impact all of our daily lives, and they, they have devastating consequences for, for all of us. And I think that that is true in, in the grand sense of simply, you know, talking about the COVID-19 pandemic, but um, getting this under control everywhere um, is, is both a matter of moral urgency. It's simply the right thing to do to be vaccinating people who are at high risk. Um, but it's also good public health. I mean, it's, it's not just one virus that's circulating. Uh, well, it is one virus, but we're now seeing you know, variants that are uh, being detected in, in different parts of, of the world that start in sort of individual countries. And now, of course, we, we have a, a, what seems to be at this point a relatively small number of those variants in Canada. But it's clear that, it, you know, the, the virus spreads uh, and affects people in Canada. Um, and so getting it under control is, is quite simply good public health uh, for the world, but also for, for Canadians, in addition to being the, the morally and ethically correct thing to do. To go back to what you were saying earlier, though, I, uh, you know, people get lost in acronyms, you know, but uh, trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights. But this is a deal. This has been talked about. This has been discussed and negotiated. And a number of countries are on side with this. But I think we need to be clear, though, Doctor, this doesn't mean if Canada signs on to this and, and supports this the way they should, that the vaccines that were going to go to Canada are going to go to some other country. That's, that's not how it works, is it? With the, the TRIPS waiver agreement specifically? Yeah. Yeah, so... I, 
everybody is is vying for uh, COVID vaccines, which today are are high demand and, and low supply. Um, so we again, we really can't lose sight of the fact that this is in in, in many senses a, a a bit of a modern miracle that we even have a number of COVID vaccines that are are going into people's arms. Uh, today, these are these are vaccines that simply did not exist even a year ago. This is uh, an, an unprecedented effort of, of global science, um, and um, the, the the counterpoint to that, I guess, um, is that while we've managed to discover and develop them and get them through clinical trials and, and now manufacture some some doses of them, um, we now need to find a way of scaling up that manufacturing capacity. Uh, to produce something that, that simply did not exist even a year ago. So we didn't have manufacturing lines that were in place that had been scaled up over many years with sort of supply projections and, and so on to know how much of this we needed to produce to, to meet global demand. Um, and in fact, that's not how the global pharmaceutical industry operates. It doesn't typically operate in a way that says, okay, there's a new drug, a new vaccine that's coming onto market. How can we quickly scale it up and get it to everyone around the world? It's, it's actually driven much more by, by market forces of how to ensure a, a, a return on investment and, and sort of optimize profitability. Um, so today, when we're in a situation where we need to quickly uh, produce billions, literally billions of doses of a vaccine that did not exist even a year ago. Um, we need to find a way of, of getting uh, the, the manufacturing know-how and the right to, to produce it to as many factories that can produce quality assured versions of this vaccine as possible, just because we need to, to be producing, quite frankly, a, a, a ton of it. Um, and so that's a challenge because new medical technologies uh, like medicines and, and vaccines are often protected by patents and other kinds of intellectual property rights. Um, and so companies are typically reticent uh, to, to share those rights with, quite frankly, their competitors, because that's just not how the, the market operates. Um, but there, there's no way of getting out of this pandemic uh, without uh, sharing of, of these technologies, sharing of these rights and sharing of this, this know-how of, of how to produce them. Um, between different uh, pharmaceutical companies and, and manufacturers because no one company has sufficient manufacturing capacity to meet global demand. So sharing is the only way that we can, we can do this. So the, the TRIPS waiver effectively says, okay, we're, we're going to get patents and other intellectual property barriers out of the conversation and out of the way for the duration of this pandemic and not just for vaccines but for other medicines other medical devices and so on that we need to be producing at a global scale uh simply to to respond to the pandemic and so uh and you know it's an, it's an initiative that's being led by india and south africa um who have been affected by a, a lack of access to other medicines in the past particularly for things like antiretrovirals for hiv where we saw patents were very clearly a barrier to getting lower cost generic versions of those drugs these are the countries that have put this on the table and said look uh, intellectual property rights and patents have been a barrier historically that's well defined we know that this can be a problem let's just take that off the table for this pandemic this is a, a, a once in a century situation um, let's not let the things that we know have been a barrier to lower cost accessible medicines um, be a barrier in, in this pandemic. Um, and so that's the conversation that's happening right now at the World Trade Organization. Um, and it's, it's certainly a, a proposal that MSF as a medical care 
provider, uh, we, we support it. You know, we see the value of, of um, lower cost generic medicines um, and see the necessity of, of scaling up uh, access to COVID vaccines and, and treatments and so on. So let's just get this out of the way and let's do what needs to be done to, to ensure that we've got the manufacturing capacity and, and know-how uh, to produce what we need. How do you do that, though? Because, I mean, the people that have developed this stuff and are now trying to market it are for-profit companies. They're private companies. The Pfizer's, the Moderna's, Johnson & Johnson, and things of this nature. And uh, they're, they're, you know, looking at their bottom line. Uh, is, is there, does there have to be something for them at the other end of this to, have to, to justify this? Or are they just are just relying on their, their sense of humanity to say, yeah, we need to do this? Well, some of these companies have said, uh, so for example, AstraZeneca um, has, has said that they were going to supply, um, that they were going to supply the, their COVID vaccine uh, at a not-for-profit price for the duration of the pandemic. Um, Moderna has said that they wouldn't enforce the patents on their uh, vaccine. So, you know, we, we actually have seen some sort of initial mm-hmm, okay. commitments um uh, that that could potentially improve access to to these vaccines um but i think that we also need to recognize that while certainly companies have invested time energy money and, and so on into developing them um the the public the global public in, including canadians canadian taxpayers have invested a significant amount, and I'm talking billions of dollars, into developing these vaccines as well. Um, and in some instances, probably uh, covering more than half of the cost of, of the research and development uh, and, and manufacturing scale-up of, of these vaccines. So it's not to say that um, this risk has been borne entirely by the, the companies and they need to recover this loss. In fact, the, the, the public... Um, has de-risked a lot of the research and development into these COVID vaccines. Um, and so I think that governments have the, have the ability to be asking more uh, in, in exchange for this funding that's gone into developing them. And, Absolutely. And, and, and more, you know, the, the argument that they need to recover the costs and, and shouldn't there be something that's in it for them? I mean, any time that we're talking about uh, you know, a compulsory license or a voluntary license of, of one patented technology to a generics manufacturer, there's typically a royalty amount that, that's in there. So it's not to say that somebody, one company is going to entirely lose, you know, that, that this is going to be done at a loss to, uh, to mm-hmm. a company. Um, you know, there, there's typically a, a reasonable uh, percentage that, that's built into these agreements as well. So it's, it's not, uh, I think all of these factors of, you know, the significant public investment in developing these technologies, plus the fact and reality of, of how these licenses uh, typically operate, um, suggests that the pharmaceutical industry, which is, I'll, I'll remind you, the most profitable industry on the planet, um, can, can certainly absorb this, this uh, capacity. And I think uh, ultimately scaling up uh, this manufacturing uh, to, to meet global demands is just what we need to do. This is the, the pandemic. Uh, if you want to talk economics, is coming at a cost of, of billions of dollars it a is. day uh, for for every country on the planet. So you know, we simply just need to do things differently. Doctor, we're going to have to leave it there for this time. Anyway, I appreciate your time as always. Thanks so much. No, thanks for thanks for having me. Take care. Dr. Jason Nickerson uh, with uh, Doctors Without Borders. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.